through life is that you do have some, some, something extraordinary. And maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's that you're a great singer. Maybe it's that you're, um, maybe it's just that you have somebody who loves you um, and, and believes in you. There's, there's all sorts of ways that people use to get through life. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm sort of pro-drugs. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today's guest is Benjamin Moser. This conversation, as you can tell if you looked at the timestamp on it, it, uh, it goes for a ways. And it was definitely one of the most fun conversations that I've had on this show. Uh, there are a lot of different streams that we talk about. Um, I think a big one is this aspect of, of performance, right? That I talk about in, in the title and the performance of everyday life. And it starts off, you know, so I stood over like how much of this conversation should I release, do I want to release, is worthwhile to release. And it really does start at the beginning. We talk about names. Where do names come from and how do they impact the way that people perceive us, right? And all the way, if you listen, God bless you, through uh, toward the end. And, you know, how do people's looks play into how we perceive them, even if they are doing something that is ostensibly intellectual, like writing or being an academic or a quote-unquote thinker, all that sort of stuff. You know, another thing that we, we talked about is another, if, if I had edited the, the conversation a little bit more, I would have called it something along the lines of uh, Benjamin Moser on being bad before you're good. Because this is another thing that I think if we, if we take the line of inquiry sort of about, you know, Ben's professional track and that sort of stuff, it talks, uh, I think we talk a lot about, you know, how he started doing shit and was bad at that thing before he became really good. Or, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning good. And, um, you know, that that definitely feels, uh, you know, it resonates with me because I feel <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm I'm in the still being bad phase of, of some of the stuff. And, and, and we anyway, we talk about that sort of that train of thought at length. Uh, the, the background here is that so Ben, uh, I read his book Sontag uh, last year, 2020. And it was my favorite nonfiction that I read that year. I loved it. Uh, it's so great. It's got so much to it. It's uh, analytical, but it's got great biographical detail. And he just did a fantastic job with it, for which they awarded him a little-known award called the Pulitzer. And uh, before that, he wrote a book on a Brazilian writer named Clarice Lispector. And that was sort of what put him on the map, uh, was that he you know, essentially brought this person uh, who's very famous in Brazil to the attention of sort of English-speaking world, has since uh, helped with a number of translations, uh, you know, of her work, and uh, basically was like, hey, here's this, you know, person y'all have been missing, and everyone was like, wow, thank you for telling us about that. So that's sort of the, the background on that, and, you know, an important part of that is that he started off doing that biography knowing nothing about how to do biography, which is just kind of incredible. So we talk a lot about, uh, you know, where, um, you know, uh, where all that, where all that came from, what that looked like, 
you know, lots of thoughts on, on different aspects of, of life and career and, and what he's learned from people he's studied and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. If you want to cut to really where he starts talking about that, um, you know, those uh, where he begins working on his professional career as, as you know, people from the outside looking in would, would understand it. That's around minute 30. So you can go ahead and skip to that if you don't want the um, preface, which I think pays rewards in, in the scope of the whole thing, but is not maybe as to the point as, as, you know, a traditional interview would be. At any rate, you know, another thing that I love about this is that I think, you know, if you listen to the whole thing here, one reason why I released the whole thing is that you get to hear us, it, it, I dare say, becoming friends, enjoying each other as people and, and connecting on a level that is certainly you know, the most rewarding aspect of doing this is when you get those conversations that you just click with someone and, and uh, you know, I think there was a little bit of that here and it was fun to participate in. So uh, at any rate, without any further ado, here is Benjamin Moser. So you're calling from Amsterdam. No, I'm calling from France. You're um, in France. Okay. I, Some reason I thought, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. That, that makes sense. I think I was mistaken about the, the Amsterdam thing. Well, I, I mean, I, that you're not totally mistaken. I traditionally am about half and half, mm. but this last year I've been here. There's been and, a break uh, in tradition in the last year. Hard to imagine. Well, traditions are, are <laughs> they're designed to fail eventually. Yeah. Um, no, I did get to go up in, um, I guess, August and September when there was not very much COVID and I even did a little bit of traveling just around Europe, uh, for some book things. But then as we know, everything got really dramatic. And I was actually in Sarajevo when our president here closed the borders as he just did two days ago. So that took some doing to be stuck outside the EU. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. when, when that, it was the first night I got there, I was in my hotel and I sort of flipped on the French news just to see what was happening. Yeah. Um, and, and, and is there your partner was. French? Dutch. Partner's Dutch. Dutch. Okay. Yeah. I can see where my one. confusion comes from. It's confusing. It's not confusing <laughs> for me. It's confusing for other people. Yeah. Um, so I. Okay. Anyway, yeah. I'm happy to elucidate <laughs> if I can. Um, here's a question. This is apropos of nothing, but is your dog named after your own vocal range? No, no. Where does the not. name Basso come from? Where does it, like Basso? Basso is. I know Basso is accused. Well, we agonized about what to name him for probably years. I would say because we've always talked about getting a dog. It's been yeah. this thing that never was going to really happen. And then we got him you know we signed up at this 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 woman in rotterdam who who breeds lagotti and she named all the puppies already and his name was basso and we thought it was cute and we couldn't think of anything better hmm. so we just left it that way right um so we had no role at all in play in naming him so you went with the default option of, of what the the small beast came with yeah, That's yeah, funny. yeah, and it kind of works. I don't know. It's kind of a cute name. What so what what it. was the name that you guys were going to go with? Had there not been one supplied already? Um, 
well, that was the question. We had all these great ideas and some of them were too weird and some of them were too pretentious and some of them were too obvious and some of them were just sounded ridiculous for some reason. And we really, um, I remember when my sister was having kids and she was obsessed with the social security website in the United States, which, um, which lists the most common baby names. Yeah. I don't know why the social security administration has this website, but they do. And, you know, the trick is like, you have to get something that's kind of hip, but not too hip. And that's like, you, it's like a little bit unusual, but yeah. not weird. So your kid doesn't have some unpronounceable freakish name. Yeah. You know, and she was like, what about Griselda? You know, so, and I was like, <laughs> you know, was, every day was a new day for her on that website. It's funny and, how that's uh, a statistical problem rather than a semantic problem, you know? It is a statistical thing. Yeah. And it's funny because her name is Laura, yeah. which my parents thought was this really interesting, unusual name. And my sister was born in 1977. And apparently it turned out they didn't have those websites, you know, mm. so you didn't really know. But apparently it was like the number three name in the US. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Because you, you know, have to judge uh, your own intuitions based off of basically what people were naming people in the past. Because you, uh, you, you know way more people who were born a while ago than people who are born right now when you're naming your kids or whatever. Yeah, you because know? you don't, you're not like hanging out in a kindergarten. And, right. um, and, and people, <laughs> I mean, my family had a little house rule i guess that that they had all of our names are basically pronounceable in most languages yeah so you know we've been talking about language and stuff so we have kind of an international family that has people all over the place and they should be able to say it you know so yeah. um and spell it and not make it weird so that does limit it and it turns out it, it ends up usually being very basic names i'm so jealous of that honestly because uh, i love my name in a lot of ways but i guess the for me it's really it's very american oh well so that's that's the thing is that it's 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 got the three parts that really you know sort of get at my uh sort of identity as as like i guess ethnic identity you could say which is super duper american first name vaguely british uh, vaguely English middle name in uh, Edward, and then vaguely German, Germanic, uh, you know, non-committally Germanic last name in commerce. Uh, and yeah, that's like a white guy from America. So that that is that is it. Really gets at my just genericness of 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 like the the heights of whiteness that I that I have. Yeah, as my as my brother-in-law says about instead of help one of my sister's friends and her family, that they're ethnically white. <laughs> yeah. But my my thing is that like one of my biggest superstitions in life I feel like is nominal determinism. Like for some reason that just really makes so much sense to me even though there's very other there's, there's very few other things that I really gravitate towards to like that. Um but especially when it comes to authors, I worry about there's something I worry about all the time, right? Is that like uh I feel I feel like for an authorial name you need something, especially in English, which loves these sort of punchy syllables. Uh, right. Where you want, you know, Moser, right? Uh, like that, that, that sort of thing. Commerce just feels too flimsy uh, to really have the authority of, a, of, of an authorial name. I so change it. I, that's the I've thing. Dreamt, I've always wanted to have a pseudonym. It's oh kind of one God. of my secret fantasies is... Um, is to write under another name. I think you're right because it does change something. I mean, I think if I were to write under another name, 
um, definitely under another, like a female name or a, another ethnicity, like if an Arab name or a Chinese name. Yeah. Um, but even just a name that is just like your name, say, yeah. I just decided that I was going to write Cody Commerce, that was going to be my name. Yeah. Then it would be totally different. And it would, in a, in a certain way, be a lot less vulnerable, I think, because you're not, oh, yeah, I you know, you're so not vulnerable. prone to the accumulation of self so th- or the accumulation of the internet. Yeah, 100%. Uh, maybe you could like do a Pessoa heteronym sort of thing. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that's uh, a, a, an underexplored option, you know? Well, so I'm reading a new biography of, of him that I think I'm going to review. Um, that's coming out, I guess, in June or something. And you see how that evolved as a way of, it evolved from the time he was a really a little kid and he was just playing with dolls or whatever and they gave him different names which Clarice Lispector also did I mean I think it's a really basic childhood creative thing it's just imagining other you know talking to dolls or or talking to dinosaurs or whatever your 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 cat um but it does your name kind of sneaks up on you doesn't it Mm -hmm. and it's it's it is deterministic in a way and it's one of the things I've always thought was interesting about astrology, which, you know, I don't quote unquote believe in astrology because I just, you know, don't, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I've always liked part of my background is Latin American. And so Latin Americans believe in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's not weird for them. It's not like, wow, I'm really, I'm this like quirky indie girl from San Francisco. Like it doesn't have that connotation at all. It's just like totally normal um and it's interesting to consult different card readers or astrologers or or people that read your palm or you know in brazil for example there's just these people are on every corner um and it's interesting sometimes they they hit on something but i do think that like where you're born and when is extremely important it is just completely inescapable where were you born i was born in seattle um, uh-huh. In yeah. what year? In 1993. Well, okay, so that's really interesting because we have a very clear idea of Seattle 1993. Right, yes. Uh... Not 1983, <laughs> 1973. But 1993, that's like you were dropped into the universe in a place that had a really strong vibe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe it rubbed off. Yeah. Did it? Um, I'm not sure about that. You know what I identify with as um, a part of my heritage or, or birthright and that sort of stuff is cowboys. Because um, my first name comes uh, is directly derived from a city in Wyoming. Um, so this, All right. yeah, so that that's something. Is it Buffalo Bill? Uh, exactly. Buffalo yeah. Bill? So that's the that's the sort of lineage of it. Is the city's oh. named after Buffalo Bill Cody, and then I was named after the city, and we have a little bit of a family connection to it and everything. But I was kind of thinking of riffing off that for like my my would be pseudonym and choosing another name in Wyoming, and then um, uh, you know I like my 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 last name, but my mom has a great maiden name, which is Wakefield. That feels like a strong. Uh, you know, American authorial uh, names. Yeah, you could be in like a Norton anthology. Of, exactly. Of, 
uh, you know. Wakefield is that that is that just that feels like you could be an American author with that name. So I was thinking maybe take a different name, the city in, or a place in Wyoming and uh, put it with my mom's maiden name. And so I was thinking like Kerwin Wakefield, that sound that that, that name intrigues Wakefield. me. <laughs> Cheyenne, I Jackson like the whole. Jackson, Jackson Hole Wakefield <laughs> definitely crossed my mind. Uh, I like Cheyenne because of the uh, sort of gender ambiguity with it. I think that that uh, it's it's a beautiful word, uh, and I, I like that it, it's. Uh, yeah, but doesn't it kind of sound like a porn star? That one's a little over the top. Um, I think Cheyenne Wakefield. I feel like she's won some awards. Yeah, <laughs> I like Kerwin because. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it's not confusing. It doesn't have any big, uh, you know, like there's nothing that you associate it with it. Like it doesn't sound porn starry, uh, but there's some intrigue to it. It's non-standard. Uh, and so it's like the, I, I, I don't know that, 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 that feels like a much more compelling, uh, uh, name to me. Well, see in my family, that would fail the can people in Dusseldorf pronounce it test. Hmm. But that's not doesn't have to be your test. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, this is just if you're seeking uh, worldwide. Wait, so, but wait, let, 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 but if you were not an established author who had a reputation to uphold, uh, would you consider if you were starting over? Would you consider writing under a different name? Yeah. Oh my god! I, would. I love that. You're changing of my life right now, to be honest. You're fucking changing my life. This has been in my, <laughs> this has been in my mind for so long, but it just seems like such a stupid fucking idea. Uh, but anyway, I'm gonna. No, to... it's not. A lot of people have done it actually. Mm. Um, I mean, Clarice Lispector wrote her whole life. She wrote all her journalism under pseudonyms. Yeah. Uh, Fernanda Pessoa did it. Yeah. Um, I think that. Yeah, I mean, Sontag has that story about the double, you know, who she tries to spin off all the unattractive tasks and the, you know, filling out the tax returns and all that kind of stuff to this body double. Um, and then she concludes something like there's no escape from the burden of self. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think that like being able, I don't feel that there's a separation between me and my writing. Um as some people do, and especially I think people who don't write think that this is some big gulf that, you know, you have to somehow think of some pretentious theory in order to combat. But I, I don't think that. I think that um, there's a certain freedom in someone else's name yeah. or in a totally fake name, um, you know, especially as you get a little bit older and you have a sort of Amazon search of all this crap that you've said through the years. You know, it kind of, uh, it does add up and there's a kind of weightiness to it. You know, in fact, my new year's resolution was to not give any more interviews, mm. uh, this year, because talking about yourself and talking in general, it feels like the gift of the pandemic is to tell everybody to shut the fuck up. Of course they haven't, you know, um, I haven't. I start, I'm so bored some of the time that I'm delighted to have some Paraguayan, you know, blog interview me because I'm sort of like, at least somebody's talking to me and I'm not just <laughs> sitting in my house with, you know, um, but, but it's true. It's oppressive. I mean, it's oppressive, especially like when you bring out a new book. Um, so I did that last year or actually, you know, it's now 2019. So it's 
a year and a half ago. Which is a meaningless, and, you know, interval. A year and a half, what does it even mean at this point? I don't know. But... No, it means nothing. Yeah. It means nothing. It was but last also, year like, that your it, book came out. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Well, go it on. was in some countries. I mean, so this is the thing about books that, you know, get published in a lot of different countries and different publishers. You know, I owe it, for example, to the books coming out this week in Argentina. I do feel like I need to show my face. I don't do thousands of interviews in Argentina, but like I'll do the main places and talk to, you know, if there's some important paper or some important, interesting critic. Yeah, you know, you do that. But then it does feel like, oh, my God, I'm telling the same story for the 50,000th time. And there is a kind of drainage of soul that comes with that. And I think that that's similar to, you know, you do start to, I don't, I mean, I don't think I, I, I don't mean to compare myself to like Britney Spears or something, you know, it's like being a writer is, is such a low, low, low level of like renown. Yeah. But, um, but you, you do feel like this character of yourself at a certain point. Um, you're sort of performing some role of like, oh, this is this writer who's talking, um, and sometimes you can you can hide behind that role in the same way you can hide behind a pseudonym. You can say, I am a source of inexhaustible wisdom. Which sometimes, you know, as a it's like, but it's like an actor, you know, it's like you tonight at seven o'clock, you are Richard the Third. Yeah. Um that's fine. I mean, it is a performance in a certain way, but I for some reason it it's not quite my way of performing. Yeah, God, that's so interesting. Uh, that's that's definitely something, and like you say, it's in a very lightweight level, but I feel the act of performance is something that is one of the things that draws me to to writing and academia. Because when I was in... When I was growing up in, in high school and then in, in college, until about halfway through college, I really wanted to be a jazz musician, uh, particularly a singer. And... Really? Uh, yeah. Could, could you, did you have the talent? No, I fucking had. That, that's the crazy thing of it is I was basically, for all intents and purposes, I was born tone deaf. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I, I, like, I was basically this really just untalented singer. But then I joined choir in like sixth grade. It was like, you know, whatever, you're 13 or whatever. And uh, I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it, though I was terrible at it. And so I took voice lessons for six years. Uh, and oh. I was in, I was so bad that in my high school jazz choir, I was the guitar player. Uh, though every, I, like, I always wanted to be, uh, you know, like a vocalist, which is not that high of a bar to get into your, you know, high school jazz. But that's how bad I was. I was a guitar player in my, in my choir. I couldn't. I was in choir, too, in high school. And I actually didn't sing. I yeah. loved being in it and yeah. i like the feeling of the songs and stuff but i realized that like if i actually raised my voice that it would ruin the effect for the 53 other people standing there however many people were in that choir your your fun <laughs> would like, be inversely proportional to so everyone bad. else's uh but uh but no i guess no, my, I, the point that i was I, saying was that like the thing that i loved about it was performance and there's something in my you know sort of uh, and as my adult interest takes shape uh, I'm chasing the 
feeling that I got being a musical performer and being on stage. Because I actually, that's the crazy thing about it, is I actually did get good starting in college, uh, which the extent to which like I had to put in six years of being totally shitty at it, but for whatever ridiculous reason kept at it until I actually became good at it. Um, oh. Well, that's interesting because I... So we talked a little bit about languages. I have a great and almost infallible feeling for grammar mm-hmm. um, that's natural. You know, it's just really, I've worked very hard over the years because even if you have a good feeling for playing the cello or for, you know, running marathons, the people who are good at those things are the people who are good and work the hardest. So, you know, I was, I was quote unquote good at that, but I also worked really hard and, yeah. and I, always i worked hard at music too and i was totally untalented but for some reason it didn't um i would have never with singing i can't sing at all i can't Mm. sing like the national anthem in a football stadium for fear (laughs) of like ruining people's afternoon you know it's like (laughs) but um but that didn't really bother me and i was good enough at the piano that i could do it if I had to, and if I practiced a thousand times, I could play a sonata. But then if I didn't practice it for another week, I would totally forget it. You know, I would have to go back to the very beginning. But performance, you know, that's one of the things that you do get to do as an author, you used to do before um, the current life we live is talking and going on stage. And it's really fun. I mean, it is a performance. And when it works so when you get that feeling that actors get and that's so addictive which is when you actually feel that you have the audience in your hand you know that you can make them laugh and cry and and be interested and be emotional that's really so thrilling but it's very rare you know because it's not really people who come to hear writers talk are usually it's not the same people that are coming to hear music or to hear, to see a play, you know, they're usually coming for some more intellectual reason. So they're not quite ready to hand themselves over in the way that people are ready to be swooped away by an orchestra. But in a sense, that's, that's a kind of blessing, right? Cause if you think about what it's like to be a comedian, uh, oh. there's an aspect in which that's really hard because the heart, the hardest thing to do in that context is to say to someone okay now i'm going to tell you a joke it's going to be very funny and i'm going to make you laugh and then actually have that joke be funny and make them laugh right and that's essentially what the comedian is doing when she goes on stage is she is going up there with the premise uh that i am going to make you laugh and so people have this very high bar about what's you know maybe there's there's obviously uh other other forces there but that 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 framing of a problem is very difficult and in a sense being a writer, uh, because people are not coming into it expecting to laugh, to, to feel X, to feel Y, whatever it is, if you can incorporate that, if you can, if you can build up to it, if you can, if you can, you know, put some of that in there, it, 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 in a sense, it, it, it's, uh, you have an opportunity to violate expectations in a very engaging way. Yeah, well, because most people think writers are boring, hmm. but I mean, I think that, and they're usually right. I mean, that, that the demand that people perform in a in a way that a comedian or an actor or a musician would perform, 
of somebody who does something that's totally different than that. I mean, because we do perform, but we perform in our books. And the reaction that you get um, can be just as harsh. You know, you get bad reviews, you get people on Twitter, you get whatever. So people do react uh, alongside the people who respond to it and like it. You do get those reactions, but they're kind of, they're not as immediate and you can kind of ignore them. You know, if somebody starts jeering you in a uh, stand-up venue, that's really hard. I mean, that one actually, of all of the performances that we've mentioned, that one seems like the most brutal to me. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're performing a symphony or something, you're kind of okay, but not amazing. You know, the people sitting there are not the kind of people that are going to start throwing tomatoes at you. Right. They're just going to go away and maybe not have loved it as much as they, they just don't do. stand up when they clap that's the only that's your punishment they, yeah yeah and they're they not gonna like clapping. yeah they're not gonna shout like shut the fuck up you know like that's what people do in comedy clubs and they're yeah. drunk often too yeah. so that makes it even more rewarding if you can actually make it work i guess i've never tried it maybe maybe i'll post confinement what, so what sort of music did you like? Did you saw you? I imagine you studied like classical piano and stuff, and maybe some sort of classical, uh, you know, choral group. What sort of music do you like and listen to and engage with on a on a regular basis? Um, well, it depends a lot. I mean, yeah, you're right about the classical music, which is kind of my my background. You know, that's what I grew up playing, and 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 then I would say like so my family background on my father's side is german and jewish and that music is the the classical repertoire that's beethoven and chopin and all that kind of stuff mozart um you know i guess the the way i really broke out and was went crazy in high school i guess was opera which i love um (laughs) And which for some reason, like my, my dad didn't ever really like the opera because he thought it was, he had this aunt in Houston, this German aunt who put on all her fancy clothes and would go to the opera and, and she would spend the entire time like trying to be spotted by people and like waving at people and like had no musical interest at all. So he always kind of, I think, associated it with that, you know, with like pretentious people, but, um, but then, you know, but my, the, what I listen to is really different. I mean, what I've listened to the last few years is a lot of country music. Yeah. I love country music. We discussed it. Um, you know, I love um, the old classic singers that I grew up with, like Tammy Wynette and Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton. And I mean, now everybody likes Dolly Parton for some reason, which right. I feel like is a complete like loss God, of I my saw, I was scrolling through girl. BBC today and she literally like you know in the in the whatever 20 things make the BBC homepage on my app Dolly Parton's fucking on the BBC homepage for something she didn't even do it was a negative it was she did not accept presidential uh medals uh so yeah she's like a worldwide she, did. she got the presidential medal of the congressional medal of honor or the Medal of something from Obama, whatever that was. You know, the okay. Kennedy Center. Well, the, the, I didn't. Uh, I didn't even look at the thing. It was just that that was the title. Is that? Oh, I denied the presidential medal uh, twice or something like that. Uh, so oh, okay. That well, was. But the, no, anyway, but it's it was just weird. Actually, the English though, the English liked country music for the mm. same reason that Americans like it because it's it's down home. But um, but yeah, no. I mean, now Dolly Parton, like, I still get made fun of as this like faggot from texas you know which was true 
which you know there was a little bit of credibility to that you know there was there was some there was something to be said for that Uh, yeah there was a lot to be said for that of course there was i loved it like it was like but but you know it was it's weird that like the things that i liked that nobody liked eventually everybody liked and um and i felt like in a way, I felt validated. I mean, a great example of that was Clarice Lispector, which, you know, was somebody nobody had ever heard of. And actually, I got made fun of. I'm not made fun of because I was already like a grown up by the time I started writing that book. But, you know, when I started writing that book, I heard daily, daily for years. That is the stupidest book idea I've ever heard of. Nobody's going to be interested. Like, you're never going to sell it. You're never going to publish it. You're wasting your time. Nobody's ever heard of her. Her books aren't even translated. Like, what's the point? And I think that I kept going on with that because I knew I was right. And I'm not right about everything. You know, uh, I'm not right about electrical engineering or, or, or astrology. I mean, you know, I have my areas that I think I know something about and Actually, I knew I was right about this. Yeah. And then it becomes really weird when like 10, 20 years go by and suddenly she's the like hippest author in the world. And it's like you almost wish it was like still just your thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You like you're like, okay, I didn't, you know. And Dolly Parton or like Tammy Wynette hasn't had her moment like mm. that. Um, but you know, I, and but a lot of the other music I listen to. Lately, I've been listening to a lot of old uh, salsa, which is something I really like. Um, The old kind of Cuban music from the 50s and 60s, um, Tito Puente and Celia Cruz and all those kind of people that I love. Um, I listen to a lot of Brazilian and Portuguese music still. um, um, A lot. I I really, that's something I know a lot of. yeah, I mean, it's funny, like of American music, I would say what I listen to is country, yeah. almost exclusively. Um, so I don't know. I mean, my taste is kind of all over the place, but I think what it has in common is that I like heavy emotional music. Mm. So whether it's opera or whether it's Tammy Wynette saying, or you Tito know, Puente. I can't. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, especially I like those big female voices too. Yeah. Um, so like when you think about like Celia Cruz, like that voice is an incredible fucking voice. And you hear it even in those early recordings in Havana in the 50s. Like, um, and then it gets better and better, as I think certain people do. I did this interview the other day in Colombia. Um, I mean, in Colombia, meaning in my kitchen, but it was supposedly in Colombia. Um, and I was talking about Chavela Vargas, who is this Mexican singer that I became completely obsessed with in college. And I met her and became friends with her and interviewed her. And actually, I think the first piece I ever wrote in the New Yorker was about her when she died. Um, uh, But I don't know. So I guess I like those kind of larger than life women. And that's something that I've written about, too. Yeah, I'd say it's fair to say that you have you have written a a modest number of words on that. Uh, (laughs) So. Okay, so this is this is what I want to dig into. It seems a little bit like, um, gosh, you, not to take away all your credit, but you almost didn't choose your subjects. Your subjects chose you. Uh, 
in the sense that with Clarice Lispector, you just and I, you know, give you credit for the perspicacity and, and perseverance, um, sticking with and everything like that. But gosh, you, you found someone so incredible who was unknown, such an incredible opportunity that I imagine the feeling was more just like, wow, I this is my duty to do this. I have to do this regardless of of, of what everyone else is saying. Uh, and then, of course, Sontag was, I believe, something that was like brought to. So it's interesting that so much of these relationships, the, these things that you've spent your this huge chunk of your life doing, it, it feels like there's almost just not like as much. I mean, the, yeah, they feel like they came to you rather than you going out there and saying, you know, these are the things that I'm going to, to do. Yeah, because none of that was planned on my part. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, I think like with Clarice, like when I discovered her in college, my sophomore year in college, I had never heard of her. And suddenly there was this thing that I just felt completely pulled into. And I didn't know. I mean, this is the thing that I am actually always interested in talking about as a learning process for myself is I didn't know how you do that. I did not know how you write a biography. I didn't know like how all that worked and how that get a book published and how you do this. I mean, it was totally 100% my obsession with her. And I often did feel that she wanted me to do this. Um, again, not in a way that is like, there was not a like message that was delivered to me by a, you know, ghostly fog in the night or something. It wasn't like that. It just felt like I knew I was the person to do that. And I knew that she would have wanted me to. And actually like, when the book came out, um, her son said to me exactly that. He said, mm. I'm, I, I know Clarice is very grateful to you. And that was like this really funny moment because I knew he was right without getting into hocus pocus stuff. I knew that like, you know, sometimes, you know, these things it's like with love affairs, you know, sometimes somebody who, technically should be your future husband technically like great looking really smart really funny has millions of dollars totally not interested you know <laughs> like and then sometimes that someone else just it works for some reason um so yeah i mean clarice and i were like a kind of love affair in that sense and yeah i mean i don't know how much i chose her i certainly you know, when I was your age, how old are you? Mm, 20, 1993, 27. 27, ballpark. So I was even younger, ballpark. <laughs> I mean, look. <laughs> these are, approximately. These are questions that have a correct answer, Cody. <laughs> Perceptually, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's a different number maybe, but it's around 27-ish. Around? Yeah, give or take. <laughs> ballpark, right, okay. Um, well, so I was you know, like 24, 25. And I had left my job and I had left, you know, I had left New York and I had left my little world of relative safety. And then I started doing this book that was like completely insane for all these reasons, because it was not something that anybody, like it wasn't something that I was going to get paid for. And in fact, you know, I sold the book. It was five years of my life and it, I got $8,500 for it. Um, when it finally wow, sold after really? being 
Wow. Yeah, so you can do the math on that. So that's like <laughs> a little more than a thousand dollars a year, <laughs> you know, before taxes. And um, yeah, so but but then it you just have that feeling. And um, but it's funny, like talking to you, like naming all these these musicians. It's funny that I I don't think of myself as I'm not like a diva worshiper. You know, I'm not like somebody like that there there's a whole category of people that that are just like really into madonna or i mean i'm not like that i just but there's something about that certain personalities that just attracts me and i guess it's the extreme personalities that i i find i find very attractive and i think that maybe uh, i'm not that extreme a personality in some ways um maybe they're they're they allow me to kind of experience it without having to like you know become a heroin addict and die at age 24 you know i can i can kind of get a little taste of it without yeah without losing myself because you can lose yourself there's a number of things that i want to unpack sort of in the last uh, few things you mentioned but one thing that i'm just really curious to know is what did you actually go into undergraduate planning to do because clearly one of the hallmarks of what you did is that it was so poorly and gloriously uh, not planned out uh or like right. you it, or the the you know you clearly importantly you had no idea what you were doing and i want to get into a little bit more of the specifics of that but i want to start with like so what when you entered undergraduate what did you think you were going to do well i have a very clear idea answer to that um I had spent part of my younger life in France, uh, where I ended up staying because I kind of understand France and it sort of makes sense to me and I like it here. Um, even though right now with the situation, it's not a great place to be. But um, I had spent, so I have a background that is slightly mixed, but all European, you know, European American. And um, I had sort of felt like I had checked off the boxes of Europe and everything. And I had had my experiences here. So I went to college to study Chinese. Mm. Um, I was fascinated by Asia. I had no notion of it. Um, but I had actually taken a class in college in high school about Chinese and Japanese philosophy, which I just was so into. I thought it was so fascinating. And I was really, I got to Brown. See, I don't know if Brown means something to you. Um, it does. My partner but, went to Brown for undergraduate. So it's actually one of the handful oh, of places did? that I had the, uh, the most significant emotional connection to. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So okay, I'm, I'm well, a huge then, fan so of Brown. I'm... Like if I had to select a, a university for my kids to go to, I think Brown is like the greatest school. I was uh, just telling my sister this. Yeah. So I don't have kids. My sister does. And, you know. Her son, she thought, well, you know, it doesn't really matter where he goes. He can go to Texas or something. He's like, not, he doesn't really care about stuff like that. But her daughter, I was like, well, she kind of has to go to Brown because she's so wacky, you know, yeah. not wacky in a like, you know, I have a nose piercing kind of way. But like cares about undergraduate. shit. Cares about interesting and you yeah, shit. care. Yeah. And the thing about Brown, you go to Brown if you are me, basically. I don't know your partner. But I mean, I think that like if you are smart, ambitious, talented, passionate, but also have no fucking clue, that's where you go. Yeah. And because you don't have to take any classes. So but to make this very long story short, I was horrible, horrible at Chinese. Um, and then I dropped out of Chinese after a few weeks 
and I wanted to take another language, so I took Portuguese just because it was the so right. So wait, wait, wait. Time. Let's wait, 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 wait. So you went into school with the big ambitions to study Chinese. You lasted two weeks. Yeah, it might have been three weeks, <laughs> but yeah, two weeks, something like that. Oh, that's no, I great. just like it was such a stressful thing for me to be. Um, I mean, I went to Brown. I can tell you, like, I was terrible at math terrible and supposedly i was the only person in my class at brown who was in the bottom half of his high school class and the reason i was in the bottom half of my high school class was that i really can't do math i'm just terrible at it um but i never and i never i did make an effort because i had to in high school because you have to you can't fail you know you have to get at least a c on your geometry test um but i knew that if i was in a place where I could explore stuff that I would, I could focus on the things I was really good at and ignore the stuff I was bad at. Cause I, you know, in high school, they're supposed to give you a general education and, and you're supposed to do some physics and some math and some history and some English. But I felt like, okay, now I know what I'm good at. I'm not good at that stuff. I'm going to do this stuff I'm good at. And so that's why I really wanted to go to Brown. And I became the kind of typical, like, poster child for the brown education because my whole career has been about just like chasing after like the way my puppy chases after little like birds and stuff i I just chased after stuff and um and brown gave me the ability to like discover brazilian literature which never in a million years would have occurred to me to be interested in I mean, I didn't have anything against it. I just never heard of it. You know, I knew nothing about it. And I fell into this class and I fell into this world. And then a lot of my career, I think all of my career has been just, you know, I guess, so I am 17 years older than you, give or take. Mm, So you were like a child. Plus or minus. You were ballpark, more or less. Yeah, plus or minus epsilon, 17-ish. So, like, that means you were, like, one year old when I was a freshman in college. That's hilarious. <laughs> but, um, but like, because that doesn't seem that long ago to me, you know, yeah. being in college. But, you know, you do, I guess, life opens certain doors and closes other doors. And, you know, if you close the door to Chinese and you open it to Portuguese, it's strange, but it it means your life is different. Yeah. A little decision like that of like, oh my God, do I have to get up at 9 a.m. and make these weird tone noises that I don't even, like I've made the ma, 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 you know, whatever. I've done that a thousand times. It still sounds exactly the same to me. Maybe it's my lack of musicality, you Mm, know, my lack of, my lack of pitch made Chinese, the tones really hard. Um, Anyway, I don't know what their question was. I think I got off. You know, there's something that that I love in that which resonates a lot with me, which is that it's funny in life how there are things that you get into and you're like, oh man, this is really hard. And sometimes you're like, this is hard in the wrong way. And sometimes like, this is hard in the right way. I know I have to stick with it. And it's funny that the Chinese thing lasted so, you know, such a such short tenure that it was clearly like this, there's, this is not the right hard. Um, and That's then, right. That's you know, exactly you, right. I thought, yeah. I'm not going to, I didn't come to this school to be bad at something else. Yeah. I came to like develop what I'm good at and not, not be like a C student and something else that I don't even, 
you know, why, why was I, right. why torture yourself? And then you go Maybe off I to, gotten good at it. and then you go off to Brazil. I have no doubt you would have gotten good at it. That's not the, that's not the point. You totally could have gotten good at it. Um, you, uh, but the, but then you go off to Brazil and obviously there's going to be aspects of that that are challenging, but if you know that the challenge is the right one, and even though everyone is telling you every day, God, what a stupid idea you're, you're pursuing, you know that you are in the right kind of hard, you know? Well, that's so funny about Brazil that you mentioned that, because I never actually have thought about it until you say, actually, I didn't like Brazil the first time I went. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel, so I went in 1996, um, shortly after your birth. And I, <laughs> and I, it was, the reason I stayed a year, and the reason, you know, this thing about where and when is very important, it was right after the huge economic reform and currency reform that, that implemented um, a new currency and a new everything following the dictatorship. And, um, and that gave Brazil at least one generation of prosperity that's now come completely undone. But yeah. it was extremely expensive because of this currency reform. I mean, it was more expensive than being in London or New York to be in Rio. And everything was shitty because it had just come out of this economic depression and this dictatorship and nothing worked and it was horrible and i thought like why am i not in venice you know why am i like being robbed on the bus that costs 48 dollars to go from one to another you know like what's the point and i didn't have it was one of the first times even though i was officially in school it was like uh i don't know if you well you're at oxford but did you ever do a like undergrad study abroad yeah i spent a summer in germany working on the language well okay yeah. Well, I mean, if you do that, like when you're in a program and there's other American kids and they're like, okay, Tuesday, we're going to visit the whatever palace and to have a tour. And, you know, that's kind of what you're used to as a younger person. But this was the first time that I was like in an adult in a foreign country for a long time. And I didn't really have that much to do. I mean, I could go to my classes, which were kind of boring. But basically, like, I just hung out, like I smoked a lot of cigarettes. I hung out on the beach, like real authorship. I mean, no, but I didn't really know anybody. I didn't really have a way socially to meet people. Um, not really. I mean, I met a few people, but I didn't really have like a structure because I wasn't like in school and I wasn't even living. I was living in an apartment. I wasn't living like on a, in a dorm where I would meet people. So all I did was read and I read Brazilian literature and I read Clarice Lispector. And that, but then I kind of thought I was gone from that. Like I didn't know that Brazil was going to come back and bite me in the way it did, you know, and just become this incredibly important thing in my life. And sometimes like for, for other complicated reasons, I studied Swedish at Brown mainly because I loved the, the professor was the wife of a professor that I loved. And he said, why don't you come take Swedish? It's really fun. And my wife teaches it and nobody takes it. And we just hang out. And I thought, why not? You know, I needed to do something. I had like already four classes and I thought I like her. I'll go hang out with her and learn Swedish. So I learned Swedish <clears throat> fairly well. I mean, I can still read it perfectly and I can understand it. I can't speak it so well. Um, but Swedish never did anything for me. Like it never opened any doors. I've been to Sweden a couple of times just by coincidence, you know, like Sontag made some films there. So I, you know, I've, I've definitely been there, but it never became a thing in my life. Whereas Brazil is this extremely important thing for me. So when did, when did it transition from like, okay, 
Wait, okay, so there's, but there's one thing I want to know. When did... You were... So you went to Brown, then it sounds like you were in New York after that, and then you were like, okay, I'm going to pack my shit up and go to Brazil. What was that decision? Was that a conscious decision of like, oh, I am going to go do this Clarice Lispector thing, and I know what I think it's going to look like? Like, what was that decision? Well, okay, so I mean, not to give you my entire life story in 29 volumes, but basically... <sighs> The, the step between that was that I had met somebody, my partner in New York, uh, a Dutch novelist, and when I was working in publishing, and he lived in Holland, and I didn't. And how do you make that work? Well, eventually, I moved to Holland. And um, at that point, I was I had left my job, I had left my country, I had left my language, I had left my um, you know, the French word déclassé, which doesn't mean what it means in English. It means like someone who's fallen out of their social class. So like if you, so like my grandfather was déclassé in the sense that he was a, an upper middle class German who, because of Adolf Hitler, was exiled to the United States and um, had to start off very, very low on the totem pole. I mean, he was a night manager at a diner, you know, when he got to the U.S., um, and I don't want to compare myself to that at all. I mean, obviously, but, but suddenly like that kind of thing that I had gone through the American system and I had checked off all the boxes and I had gone to the Ivy league school and I had all the jobs and the right places in New York. And I knew everybody suddenly, like I had no job, no friends, no connections, no nothing really. And it was really hard for years, you know, just to like, people didn't weren't interested in me in this way that was really fascinating from a class perspective, because I realized that like how much of people pretending to be interested in me in America was because I had the right accent and I had the right background and I had the right, you know, uh, you, you know, I had the right resume yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You did everything um, the society asked of you in order to be a successful individual through the age of 22. In my society, I was like the perfect, American boy yeah. from my class and my and my society. I, and then no I, one I gave a shit. Through. And then you no you, one gave a shit. Yeah. And they but like they looked at me like it's not like they hated me and I was like the victim of racial oppression or it wasn't anything like that. It was just like I was totally invisible yeah. in this way that was really hard for me. And then um and you know I learned the language and I you know you're a foreigner. And nobody gives a shit about foreigners. I mean, that's one of the things that you learn if, if you stay abroad long enough that you can either take that as a freedom, which I did. You know, I actually, I chose that. I chose not to be the perfect American boy. I was no longer interested in, in, in that role. Um, but then you have to find another role for yourself. Well, anyway, so I, you know, I wrote a piece here and there. I did some stuff and I like worried a lot. Um, I ate a lot. I actually remember that like i was hungry all the time because i was so nervous and, and so insecure and then i was sitting out in my garden one afternoon in the netherlands and i read that this festival was happening in brazil and it was about i mean it was a big literary festival and sometimes or always at this festival they always honor a, a famous brazilian writer because it's a big international festival and it's a way of getting people interested in, in brazilian literature and creating some awareness about it and it was going to be Clarissa Spectre and I was like god damn it that is I, I need to be at that thing yeah like she's the love of my life and 
I talked to this friend of mine who's now the director of Harvard University Press. Uh, so funny how like you grow older and all your friends become important or they die. They either die or they become important. Um, like the girl that my book is dedicated, my Sontag book is dedicated to died, you know, age 37 or something. Um, oh, wow. He was like, why the hell are you in your garden in Holland instead of going to that festival? You should go there. Just go. And I thought, wow. Yeah, he's right. Okay. So, and then, so I stayed up all night thinking about this and looking up the KLM website. And I was like, God damn it. I could be in Sao Paulo tomorrow afternoon. I really could. That's how airplanes work. (laughs) So why am I worrying about this? And, um, so I got up when Arthur got up, I was like, I told him this and he was like, yeah, of course you should do that. Go. So I went and, um, and I never stopped, you know, that was the big moment when I thought that's, that's the thing that I have to do. So this freedom, which could feel like alienation, you know, it could feel like a loss of self in a very profound way. Um, it was also a freedom. Like I don't have to do what everybody expects me to do in america like i don't have to be like a partner at some law firm on lexington avenue or you know whatever whatever else so but it's actually related to losing your name you know to a pseudonym i think i've always been attracted to that moving to a different country um losing your social and class position is something that like most people never do because it's really scary um it's and i'm kind of proud of it you know i'm proud that i did it yeah um but that's not how i thought of it at the time i just thought like can i please get away from these horrible people (laughs) you know which was like everybody um who was like chasing after you know some retweet we didn't have twitter back then but you know like people like managing their very careful little careers and their lives and their kids and their um their sort of determination not to ever take a risk and not ever to fall off that ladder. Um, God, that's amazing. Uh, so we're, we're almost at like an hour right now. Is that what I want to, I don't want to like, Oh, uh, okay. So, I mean, I don't, uh, know. So I'm just going to keep asking you shit cause I'm interested in, in all of your stuff. Sure. Will you just let totally. me know when you have to go do other things? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in a work avoidance phase right now, so that's why I love to feel free to. Great. Um, yeah. All right. So, um, uh, so you, you are called to Brazil. Uh, your soul, your soul is called to Brazil, uh, and then your physical form gets on an airplane on a KLM uh, airplane, and and then manifests in in Sao Paulo, and uh, then. You, there's kind of a listless phase. It's like, okay, I uh, I have this. I've been, I've been attracted. I've I've followed the the call. Now I'm sitting here on the beach smoking cigarettes uh, and not really uh, pursuing it. Not really directed in any meaningful way. When do, what does what what happens next? What uh, when does the well, so these are two start? different phases actually. So when I'm talking about smoking on the beach, that was the, when I was a, an undergraduate and I was studying abroad in Rio. So that was the um, first was time. A, yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That was a, that was a like bad experience of, of being bored and, and, and isolated and just like having nothing to do. So that was actually that was, chronologically before you, uh, 
Yeah, okay, got it. Well, that was like 1996. So what I'm talking about is like eight or nine years later right. when I physically manifested in Sao Paulo. So Brazil had stayed in my life after that. I kind of felt like after I left the first time, I was like, okay, interesting, interesting country. I'm glad I got to know it, whatever, moving along. And, um, and then, but then Brazil kept coming back in my life in all these weird ways, whether it was personal ways, whether it was um, professional ways, learning Portuguese turned out to be this really useful skill in publishing surprisingly enough um but no then so when but when i was already in my early mid-20s um i guess i was like 25 or so at this point when i 26 when i went back to brazil for this festival and i got there and i instantly was i went to all the things because you know it's always funny we're talking about like people showing up to listen to authors like i hate listening to authors i never do it like when i go to these festivals i like flee as fast as i can i like, go do my thing but like i'm like what are these people doing here listening to all these boring people like me you know but um somehow people are into it Thousands go to a fucking to music things. festival go find britney spears or something like that you know that's exactly right i was like yeah. britney spears like at least you might get laid you know like <laughs> at the concert do some drugs <laughs> listen to some music why are you here yeah listen yeah to... yeah yeah like why you really want to listen to me talk about like early modern philosophy i mean okay fine like i'm happy to talk about it and you know i'm grateful that people show up but like but i was riveted by mm. this riveted totally obsessed and i i got to meet a lot of the you know the scholars and the other writers who've been inspired by Clarice, and like I, I bought all these books because at the bookshop, you know, because she was being honored. They had not only all of her work, which I had already read, but all the criticism and all the, you know, all the paraphernalia. I mean, Clarice is like a religion in Brazil, so there's hundreds of books about her everywhere, and um, I just felt like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do, and um, so I walked around in that way that younger people have and that older people lose which is that ability to just bullshit your way through into becoming a grown-up and um so i just walked around saying like hi you know i'm writing a biography and it was totally untrue at the time but people kind of believed me like brazilians were like oh that's great we you know she deserves to be better known and internationally and all this like sounds great and so i kind of just talked my way into doing this work but i had no idea what i was doing i didn't know what it implied i mean you find that out later you know you find out what it means um to interview people for example which is something i have spent much of my life doing at this point um you you, you realize how the world is connected and not connected so in other words you realize that brazil has like 12 citizens which you get there and you think, wow, Sao Paulo looks like it has 30 million people. But actually, um, socially, it's very easy to navigate because everybody knows each other. Mm. And that's and so once you know a few people, then they start sending you to other people. And pretty soon you you start feeling this geography that's a physical geography, like in the sense of like, how does Rio connect to Sao Paulo? But also how does like, the diplomatic core connect to musicians like who's the person who was like the ambassador who also played the guitar right <clears throat> so once you know that guy then you know that you know so it's interesting and, and then then i i kept following you know just pulling the threads that were offered to me and <clears throat> and then writing this book 
and it was really fun. I mean, I, I, I make it sound sort of gloom and doom at the beginning, but that's because I was so, it was such a risk, you know, and, and it was submitted to 11 publishers and only one of those publishers made an offer on it. So it could very easily have never existed. Right. So never. one of the things I've heard you mention is that there are all sorts of legal uh, potential pitfalls <clears throat> in writing a biography and, and, and that sort of stuff. And so you had to manage not to fall into anything like that that was going to kill the mm. project. But how did, how did the project start to take shape? Like, when did it go from you telling people at the festival, I'm writing a biography, uh, which wasn't true, um, to actually writing the biography? Well, yeah, I mean, so it kind of evolved really quickly. I mean, because once the thing is, um, you know, that great line from Maya Angelou that I always love. She says, when people tell you what they are, believe them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I love that but like it's funny that actually the belief that other people might have in you reflects and you think oh well maybe that's not such a crazy idea like maybe okay like this woman is really smart and interesting and she thinks i can do it so i can maybe do it and then you have to also fight against the people who think like you know because brazilians were of course very supportive but then you know americans and brits were like i've never heard of her what the hell are you doing um, and that, so you go, I mean, I guess it starts because you have an, an interest. You just really want to actually read the 147 books that you brought back from this festival. Um, and then you start taking notes and then you start having questions and then you start just putting it all together. And it's very painstaking, actually. Like, it's not something that you, it, it doesn't, there's not a path to doing it unless you impose a path on yourself. So at a certain point, either you're just reading a bunch of books and you're like talking on the phone to a bunch of old ladies, or you are organizing yourself, you know, or you're like, okay, I'm going to call Maria because Maria knew Clarice in 1964 and she went to this, she went on vacation with her. So I'm going to call her and say, how was that vacation? So either you're doing that because you're just like a fanboy, or you're doing it because you're you see it as a piece of a puzzle so it just kind of evolved i mean i think that it it wasn't something that really it just seemed like the perfect project and once you get enough critical mass then then you you can start writing it yeah i mean that's all the the legal stuff i mean yeah did you write the full manuscript before you even talked to a publisher or an agent yes i wrote the fucking thing that's that's unadvisable It is so unadvisable. Like it, it was, although, but you know, that was the freedom that I was seeking. That was yeah. the freedom I sought at Brown. That was the freedom that I sought when I left America, um, was to follow myself, you know, and not be caught in a thing that, you know, any career, like any structured career imposes. And the structure gives you a monthly paycheck and it gives you some security and it gives you like, I am professor so-and-so and, this is who I am instead of like, I'm just this random unemployed person, which is how I've felt most of my life, (laughs) you know, like it gives you that that security. But I think that I've always opted for insecurity. Um, And I've, I've paid a high for that in a lot of ways, but I've also had everything that I, the reason you called me and want to interview me is because of that as well. 
like the reason I have any kind of position in the world or any kind of achievement in the world is that I've always been extremely nonconformist in a certain way. Yeah, no, that definitely seems crucial that in order to do something interesting like that, you have to give up the uh, the sort of conventional route to get there uh, because there is no conventional route to, you know, whatever, whatever even, you know, like the, the, the Clarice biography, whatever you want to call that, you know. One thing, the, the thing that strikes me is crucial about this is that so I have this sort of life motto which uh, I, I describe as uh, dumb enough to start, smart enough to finish, uh, which sort of describes, uh, you know. That's exactly. Which is exactly what you were. Like if, like if you did a rational analysis of, of the, if you were actually well-informed, uh, like at the start of it, there's no way you would have done it. Uh, no there's one, no, no one works way. like that. But that was the, that was the blessing. That was the, that was the thing you had going for you is that you were dumb enough to start. And then it turned out that you were also smart enough to finish. And once you got into it, you made that shit happen. Uh, and that to me is that's, that's where the really, you know, beautiful stuff comes from, you know? Well, it's the difference. I wanted to be an artist. I didn't want to be a hack. You know, I could have had a hacky career, whether in publishing or in, in journalism or in law or in academia. I mean, if, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of avenues open to someone like me when you're 22. But um, I, yes, yeah, smart enough to finish is really, I mean, you do have to take that leap. You really do. That's the dumb part. You really do. And you do not know what's going to work out. And I have as many dead manuscripts, essays, whatever, rejected pitches to everybody in the whole world as the most pathetically failed writer out there. I mean, I have taken it on the chin so many times. And um, I think that's what talent is, being able to keep going in the face of total insanity in a way. Um, but, you know, smart enough to finish, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to finish things. And there are a lot of impediments to finishing. You mentioned the legal stuff. I mean, that stuff, I had no idea. I mean, talk about dumb enough to start. I did not know how dangerous it is to write a biography, particularly in a place like Latin America. I mean, I Latin America, a lot of Americans still have the stereotype of Latin America as like, you know, with some one-eyed general censoring your thing, you know, in the smoke-filled room. Um, but there's no censorship like that in Latin America. Um, not anymore. Uh, there used to be. But what happens is that um, there's a lot of social censorship. There's a lot of ways that people can fuck with your life that you have no idea. Um, you really don't. I mean, and that happened to me with both of my biographies is that people tried that. And, uh, and it was very dangerous. It was very dangerous to me even physically. Um, I mean, I've been on the receiving end of physical threats of violence um not not only lawyers and publishers and stuff like that but you know real <laughs> difficult things but yeah smart enough to finish yeah that's true i mean i think dumb enough to start um you do have to have a kind of self-belief that carries you through all that and i don't know i think there's a mystery as to where you get that self-belief because i guess i always had it um, but it's not like the kind of self-belief that's like, I'm supremely confident because I'm not, you know, I'm actually really 
unsecure, not insecure, but unsecure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not always, I don't think I, wow, I'm always right about everything or anything. I mean, I, I, I've taken chances and not all of them have been great ideas. That that's something that I resonate with is that, um, and this is something that's very confusing to me about myself, which I think, uh, it sounds like it also probably applies to you, which is that simultaneously I desperately care what other people think and don't give a single shit about what they think. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do uh, Uh, anyway. This is why I can't be your academic advisor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I mean, it sounds sort of like what you're describing of yourself as well, right? Is that you exactly, yeah, exactly who I am. Yeah, exactly. I do. I'm not somebody. I'm not Emily Dickinson who thinks like, oh, I don't care if I'm just lock myself in my room and then if I die and nobody reads my poems, that's fine. Like, I don't. Of course, I want. Like, I do care what people think. Um, but I care about what the right people think. I think I have a really good sense for who is smart and who I respect and who I don't. And that's very hard um, in New York, but I think probably in any community that you would be into, you know, that you would be involved in, whether it's academia or, you know, journalism or, or medicine or what, you know, there are some people that you gravitate to and that you're attracted to because you feel like they're nice and smart and interesting and other people that are wastes of your time. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's weird for some reason I, I, I care enough and I also don't care enough. I mean, I'll tell you just a silly example of something I did yesterday for the first time in my life. So I do, I turn down, uh, something from the New York times, mm. which, you know, for writers, I don't yeah. know if you're. That's you're how you know you've made like, it. Is uh, is uh, when you start turning down your New York Times, like ah, I've got other shit going on. Well, no. So they asked me to review this book, and because I am on some level desperate for approval, like every other fucking idiot writer out there, you know, um, I want the New York Times to like me. I want them to ask me to review stuff. I want them to ask me to write articles for them. Of course I do, but. Anyway, the Times Book Review asked me to review this book that I got, and it was a terrible book, just hideous. And I thought, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to spend two weeks of my life on this, or more, reading, writing, about this total waste of time of a book. And then I'm going to write a piece that either is a total fucking lie, because I didn't like this book, and I'm going to pretend to like it just because I don't really think there's that much to be gained from me from writing shitty reviews of people's books. And secondly, or, you know, or I trash the book, which it deserves, and somebody hates me for the rest of my life. And, you know, why? So, so I get like $1,100 and that's the, the big payoff. Like, so I said no. Um, but, you know, it's something that, that I don't feel like, I don't feel great about it. I feel kind of nervous about it. Like, I definitely think, oh, golly, gee. I hope the New York Times doesn't hate me as if like the New York Times is a major problem in life is like whether I review some book, you know, but, um, <laughs> right. Like we move yeah. on, but like it, so, but you know, you do feel that kind of need for approval when you have taken a, a path that is almost guaranteed to not get approval. And I mean, it's kind of hilarious that like, I, I like burned all my bridges. I like, 
headed into the Amazon. I mean, literally. Yeah. <laughs> like in the case of Clarice, like I really went to the Amazon to try to get off of this track where I would get all the little gold stars from my society. And then like at the end of it, they give me the Pulitzer prize. You know, it's kind of hilarious in a way. Like, cause I sort of like, I guess I can't escape my destiny of being like, like this shiny American boy. Right. And but, in the uh, end, that's actually, that, that's the irony of it is in the end, you actually were uh, the thing that you set out not to be at the end of college. You exactly. Were, you were that all along. Isn't that hilarious? Oh my God. Isn't that hilarious? Like that's you why it's like, you can't escape destiny. What did you say about nominal determinism? It yeah. is. It's like, yeah. you can't get, you know, you're going to be who you're going to be and you're going to maybe take a path to it. Now, I mean, to be perfectly, perfectly clear, there's nothing probably in my life, certainly professionally, that was as fabulous as winning the Pulitzer Prize for me. I mean, it was just like the biggest reward for having been you know, so true to myself in certain ways. Yeah. Because, um, you know, being true to yourself, a lot of people who are true to themselves, like, end up in the gutter, like, peeking out their guts and 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 anonymous graves. I mean, probably, you know, there's a lot of ways to be true to yourself that aren't. You have to have a lot of luck to, 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 to have that work out. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it really would be better to go to law school and just, like, punch a clock um probably for most people so anyway so i mean it's kind of funny though when i, I mean when i say that sort of ironically i did feel like i was um i was not going to be on the social political cultural ladder that that i was expected to be on but then i ended up on it anyway you know, it seems like maybe there's something related to the uh, the thing we were talking about, that tension between caring about what people think and not caring about what they think, uh, in that you have to have the belief that what you're saying is something that people should care about. And, you know, you're sensitive to the world and the people who live live in it and, and, and what they think and that sort of stuff. And so you want to contribute to that. You want to be a part of that. You ha You have that as this sort of ultimate goal. But in the meantime, in the sort of proximal decisions that you're making, uh, you have to be willing to go against what is currently thought, what people are currently saying, in order to get at the larger thing. Uh, and so maybe having both of those sort of... Yeah. Well, you have to have, like, I, you have to have really clear moral values, I think. And mm -hmm. you have to do stuff that's not bullshit. You know, you can't... If I had tried to um, sell... Clarice Lispector, uh, you know, this mediocre nobody that was not interesting. And I tried to do this big PR blitz and spend a lot of money, you know, putting her on the billboards. It would never have worked. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you see these people's careers now, now that I'm in my mid forties and I see people who are really hot when they were 25, uh, you know, and they got some book contract and everybody in my like crappy apartment, you know, drooled with envy. Those people are nowhere now. Um, because, you know, you can have a flash in the pan and some people can keep that going longer than other people, but most people can't. And I think that, um, I think that society does eventually reward people who are true to themselves. Um, I hope it does. I mean, that's, that was my, that was my wager and I bet my life on it. I mean, I don't think it's too 
dramatic to say I bet my life on it. God, that's so fascinating. Uh, that is, it, honestly, yeah, no, it, it definitely comes through in, in all that. Uh, I, I, have, I have some things I do want to ask you about the, the Sontag book, maybe by way of um, transition. There's something I want to ask, which is that, so when you left for Brazil uh, to write the Clarice book around 25, you were not good looking. Uh, and now you are. So I'm wondering, does becoming a famous writer actually make you better looking? That's a fabulous question. <laughs> um, have you seen pictures of me when I was 25? You, you gave this interview uh, on like how to write a biography uh, where there was accompanying photos of you and some other stuff and, and everything. And uh, one of you is like visiting uh, someplace in Eastern Europe. I can't remember where. Uh, for some, uh, it, it was some uh, Jewish intellectual you were visiting his grave or something like that. And uh, I've seen a lot of brown nerds, who, uh, brown meaning the university, uh, a right. lot of brown nerds uh, who <laughs> look exactly like that. Um, and uh, yeah, now, uh, uh, you know, at least in your official author profiles and your, you know, give public interviews, uh, the look has improved dramatically yes <laughs> oh yeah 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 well i mean so this is a fascinating question for me that i could i could talk about this for hours and hours Amazing. and hours because i am fascinated by appearance and how people look and by sexuality and by seduction and oh, attraction that's so and, weird and the biographer how... of susan sontag's interested in appearance and, and image and sexuality god that's oh but this isn't but this is this is cancelable these days. Mm. If you say that a woman was really good looking, like you're going to like never get tenure. You know, I mean, that'll be like, it's, it is a fascinating coincidence that both Susan Sontag and Clarissa Spector were incredibly good looking. And I always wonder about it because no, you're right. I mean, I was not, so I was actually good looking. I was better looking when I was younger. Um, mm. I was better looking in, in kind of in, my teens college you know and then i kind of went native or something i like manifested my inner brown student or something <laughs> yeah. and um, people I, like, become slightly dirtier less hygienic at brown i feel like but you know that's not i was there. hygienic i was always hygienic but i was like you know i didn't i let my hair grow really long at a certain point and I, anyway it was not always really great right. but um in fact you're right i have become hundred times better looking as I've gotten older, which yeah. is really strange because yeah, it's, awesome. Um, it's awesome. Well, it's not the thing that people tell you, you know, they think, Oh, like when you're 22, you're really hot, but actually most 22 year olds are really awkward and have bad skin and don't have any money. And, you know, money plays into that, of course, because the more money you have, the better looking you can become Yeah, <laughs> because you know, like, um, you can, there are better hair places you can go to and you can buy nicer clothes. <laughs> It actually really helps. You can get a personal trainer. But this question of appearance is, first of all, it's a question that no gay guy or woman would ever, writer, I would say, or artist, would ever play down. I would never say that it's not important to my career that I was good looking. Never. It's absurd. If I was yeah. fat and hideous, I would have had a much harder time. A much harder time. And that's absolutely true of Susan Sontag and Clarice Lispector. I mean, if Clarice Lispector came from a dirt poor refugee, not even an immigrant background, a refugee background, um, she was an orphan. She was completely like the dregs of society in, in a 
in a country with a huge, huge class system, much more than the United States, you know, at least then you could go to a public school and you didn't have to be rich and you could go to college. You know, she, I wonder, like, if she hadn't been so beautiful, would she have been able to marry a good looking guy from a really respectable family who became an ambassador? You know, it's not obvious that she would have been able to. And if she hadn't married him, she would have had to stay, you know, maybe she would have taught high school or she would have like been a journalist or something. And she literally would not have had time to write her books because, you know, if you're an upper middle class or upper class Brazilian, you have a maid and you have a nanny and you have a cook and you have another maid and you have another cook. I mean, this is how Latin America was. It still is a little bit. It's not as totally predominant as it used to be, you know, servants coming out of people's ears. But, um, but, you know, that's the Virginia Woolf question of, you know, a woman needs a room of her own. And it's a lot easier to have a room of your own if you aren't forced to pay the bills um, in her case. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Like, I, I think that what people perceive as attractive is very rarely physical. You know, it's we've all had the experience of being really hot people who are totally vacuous and idiotic and just feeling no attraction to them at all even though if you saw a picture you would think wow like let's jump right into bed and then you talk to them for five minutes and you're like oh my god please get me out of here um and vice versa and you know people who met might not be physically on the cover of vogue magazine but when you talk to them and you hang out with them they're so interesting and they're so compelling that like they become really attractive um so in my case, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's definitely true that I, as I became more myself, uh, you know, as I became more able to do what I wanted to do and, and had the life that I wanted to have um, and was seen by people as attractive, that I did become attractive as a result. Isn't that strange? God, yeah, no, I, you're right that there is there is causality in both directions and that becoming yes. better looking gives you the opportunity to enlarge your platform and uh, getting richer and, and more successful uh, allows you to become better looking. So it's a self-reinforcing thing. Right. But also richer and more successful makes other people perceive you totally differently. Yeah. So like yeah, I was watching How to Marry a Millionaire the other day, and um, which is hilarious. And there's a line in there like – Sorry, what were you watching? You know, how to marry a millionaire and i think marilyn monroe says you know there's nothing like a texas oil field to make me you know fall in love with a man you know so you realize like that it's kind of funny that 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 what other people perceive to be attractive often is something that you know i wouldn't you know, when people perceive you to be successful or, or fancy or, or useful to them, they can start looking at you in very different ways. I mean, it is a very Sontagian question. And I think that all women writers yeah. write about looks and clothes and hair and makeup. And no real woman, whether it's Clarice Lispector or Edith Wharton or Virginia Woolf, would ever downplay the importance of appearance in women's lives. And if you do Again, downplay the importance, that itself is a statement about the importance of it. Well, yeah, I mean, people think, oh, I don't want to be judged. And like, and you know, a lot of unattractive women will get very upset 
if you say that it's important to be attractive. Um, I mean, I've been attacked by this, about this. I think it's very, of course it's important that Susan Sontag was so attractive. I mean, you, you, you interview men who met her when she was 18 at the University of Chicago, and they tell you that like when she walked into a room, everybody stood up, you know, because she was so gorgeous. Yeah. Um, how can that not influence your, your life? Yeah. And, you know, and I think that, 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 that I, you know, I think gay men understand this just so naturally. It's so obvious to us that like, you know, the quote unquote male gaze, which we both have and are the object of is really powerful. And it's really, um, if you deny it, you're living in some fantasy world that is just, that is it's like i i couldn't read a writer who said that because i would think okay well you understand nothing about human relations right um (laughs) it's like saying oh like you know the fact that i'm a rockefeller has nothing to do (laughs) with like it's just the name it's just the name nominal determinism right it's nominal determinism like who i really am is so different and you're like "Uh uh-huh okay Maybe so people have to tell themselves that. There's another thing I think that's crucial here that you that you mentioned a couple of times, which is the temporal aspect of how good looking you are. And one of my yeah. theories is that you need to go through a period of being an uggo in order to get your moral values on right. Because I think I think the the sweet spot here is to be able to exploit the existing structure of the fact that good lookingness is important of attractiveness is important while not uh you know believing that it is the ultimate uh coinage of, of human value right so you, you want to hit that and if you are good looking forever for every stage of your life then you learn that people value you because you are good looking and you have no incentive well, but this is the, the thing but because it doesn't last your whole life i mean it is something that's in constant flux but, but you One have to but in, when you're when you're young if, if you're if you're an ugly teen uh, or right. ugly in your early twenties, you learn. Well, fuck! I gotta like learn things about the world. I have to. I have to be of some value to society because my my looks alone aren't doing it. And so, if you develop that when you're young, you learn to value that, and you learn to uh, not re- use uh, attractiveness as a crutch. Then, when you're attractive later on, you get both of them. You get the 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 value of you know whatever you had to become good at, uh, as well as being able to tap into the um, the gold mine of, of, uh, good looks. Yeah. I mean, that's assuming that it does happen. I think that like being ugly and awkward, if you're really, I mean, most people aren't hideous. Most, most people are just average, you know, they look however they look and it's not so scandalous. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, if, if you're, if you're destined to become better looking, um, then yeah, you know, you do remember that, but you also, I think that, so one of my best friends, is a very famous Brazilian actress who, um, you know, I mean, she's every, she's just a fabulous actress. And, and she's known as the Brazilian Sofia Loren, which I always thought was kind of exaggerated. But now that I, I just watched this movie about Sofia Loren on Netflix the other night, I was like, actually, they look exactly like, I mean, she, but you know, now she's in her mid forties and she's in this role. She's still very good looking. Um, but you know she's in her mid 40s and that's not the same as being 24 and being a supermodel which she was and um you know she's in a phase where she has to now adapt to what do you do like do you become the like milf do you become the like 
grand dame, you know, who like wears like, you know, like what Sontag did, like you wear like big scarves because mm. you're a little fat, you know, or because you're, you know, like in Sontag's case, you know, she was operated on, she lost her breast. Um, you know, how do you deal with when the mirror starts to crack? And that's something that is, a, it's a very human thing and it's a very dramatic change. I mean, it's a very, to lose your looks if you had looks. I mean, this is why we have the plastic surgery industry, the fashion industry, the makeup, hair, fashion industry is because, you know, that's what people have that can often be in, 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 in sad lives. Like I, I just mentioned Marilyn Monroe, you know, um, that you through life is that you do have some, some, something extraordinary and maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's that you're a great singer. Maybe it's that you're, um, maybe it's just that you have somebody who loves you, um, and, and believes in you. There's, there's all sorts of ways that people use to get through life. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm sort of pro drugs in a way, even though I'm not a drug user. Um, but I kind of understand that people need something to get them through life. Hmm. Um, and it takes all these different forms and, and sometimes drugs can be really helpful. You mean drugs um, as a sometimes... form of extraordinary experience that you are tapping, you have uh, a means of tapping into a form of extraordinary experience by using drugs or escaping yeah. from the fact yeah. that or, you are not otherwise. Or I'll give you another example. I'll give you another example that's more boring, but maybe you're sexually awkward and you need to like take a couple shots of vodka in order to get laid, you know, to like loosen up and like make your move, you know, something like that, like that, that you need something to take you out of yourself, out of your, your drama a little bit. Of course, all those things, whether it's sex or money or, you know, gambling or shopping or, or all the things that people fuck up their lives doing, um, they can turn against you, of course, and they often do, but they don't necessarily have to, you know, I mean, there's not always like the beautiful young woman isn't always destined to turn into the haggard crone. You know, she can also turn into an attractive older woman, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so it doesn't, I think all these things can help or hurt. They're not absolute fixed values. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've thought about that a lot. It's a, something I, 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 again, I could talk about it for hours. I could talk about it in my own case. Um, it's strange. God, I love how into this topic uh, you are. And it also makes so much sense in the context of, you know, if you didn't if you didn't care enough about this particular topic to go on about it for a couple hours right you could not have understood the worlds that your subjects occupied and the way they felt that they were interacting with that world and and, and all that sort of stuff right this was a crucial this has has been a crucial piece of the puzzle to the the um you know the worlds that you've, you've, you've tried to, to unlock. It's you know? absolutely central. Yeah. Central. Yeah. And I can tell you, I've been often attacked for it. Very often reviewers have said he talks too much about how good looking she was or how she looked in a swimsuit or how whatever, or about her hairstylist. I mean, meeting Susan Sontag's hairstylist in Honolulu was one of my 
biggest eureka moments because you could actually see like this is a guy who's a good hairstylist in Honolulu. And if you're a really good hairstylist uh, or makeup person or, a, you know, it's related to being a photographer or a painter, you know, it's how do you kind of constitute reality out of the lump and mass of humanity and like make something beautiful out of it. Um, you know, he designed that hairstyle with the white streak in her hair. And mm. this was so famous that Sontag herself joked, you know, what someone said, what are you best known for? And she said, the white streak in my black hair, <laughs> which is kind of ironic because, you know, that's a comment on superficial celebrity culture and stuff, but it's also kind of true. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, I think if you wrote about Clarice Lispector and you didn't understand how important clothes and hair and makeup were to her, just reading her books, it's on every page. You know, when in The Passion According to GH, I don't know if you've read it, the mind I'm talking about, this beautiful actress, um, she played GH in a film that's going to come out. And GH is an upper-class society woman in Rio who is confronted with this hideous cockroach. That's the whole plot. Um, ends up eating the cockroach, which is not really a spoiler because everybody knows it. But um, this whole mystical novel is about how basically her mascara starts to run and her hair falls apart. And when that happens, her whole soul falls apart and she's exposed to the nakedness of God in this way that, um, that requires, you know, she has to physically, her appearance has to fall apart in order for her to do this. So I think it's a very profound subject. I mean, it's something that I've often wondered about. I had this cancelable thought in my head that I thought, like if I wanted to totally make myself a pariah forever. But um, it's a question that I, I mean, it was, it's a question that I wanted to answer in form of an essay. And the question was, must a woman writer be beautiful? Yeah. And um, to which you were presumably going to uh, argue for the affirmative. Well, <laughs> yes. And no, well, yes, yes, in a You're way. Right, right. But like, but not only. I mean, right, I think right. that like I think that people become beautiful through writing, maybe. And I think mm. like if you look at someone like Edith Wharton, who I was just talking about recently, um, you know, Edith Wharton was not beautiful, but she if you read impressions of her, uh, Gertrude Stein is another example. Um, Simone de Beauvoir. People found also. Yeah, she was kind of horsey, Hannah Arendt. I mean, these people weren't gorgeous. Actually, right. Simone de Beauvoir was good looking as a young woman. But yeah. um, no, but you realize, like, but it's very interesting. If you read any biographies or any accounts of people who met them, they will all say that they were beautiful when they met them. Huh. So they, their talent and their minds somehow expressed themselves in a form that might be kind of banal. You know, people say, oh, she's really good looking. When what they mean is she was so interesting and smart. Um, is that was that going to be the title of the that, essay? Was um, uh, riffing off Arendt, uh, you know, banal the banality of, uh, of beauty or something like that? <laughs> no, I mean it was just about it yeah, was just yeah. about this experience of like if you actually look at Clarice Lispector from a you know if you're like an art director and you're casting somebody for your modeling show, like actually you wouldn't cast her. She's kind of weird looking, but um, but she universally was considered by every 
brilliant and smart man in Brazil to be the most attractive woman of her generation by a long margin. So it's not, you know, because people always, especially women always worry about like, oh, my, is my butt too big? Like, is my, or my thighs too fat in his jeans and stuff like that. And you realize actually like the true beauties, they can have fat butts. You know, so the, the, in other words, the idea that people have of what's beautiful is actually not what they actually see. It's like some idea that they have, but it's not what they, you know, the women that, that are experienced as beautiful are, are often not, um, they're often idiosyncratic physically, I mean. So that, that goes back they're to They're not the, the perfect. Yeah, that goes back to what we were kind of mentioning about the interaction between there's the there's the bi-directional connection between it. So it's not just, okay, we're gonna set up our standard of, you know, here's the platonic ideal of, of beauty. Uh, everyone go conform to that. But there is an inevitable interaction between the the way uh, someone writes, particularly, you know, a woman, and the way that person looks. Um, especially it goes for everyone to some extent. But uh, particularly for women, is that 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 is that kind of a fair uh, summary of that point? Well, women are often more subjected to these uh, judgments than men are. Mm -hmm. Although, again, this is why I say, like, as a gay man, um, we are also subjected to oh, that. Oh, I, 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 I'm not a woman, so I, I'm not going to like make big claims about uh, that because um, uh, I don't have as much force from that. But. Uh, men uh, and the I am very fascinated uh, uh, with the connection between men and how they look and uh, you know how we listen to them and all that sort of stuff I'm very that's something that I'm very sensitive to and, and, and more of a student of are you good looking well um, yeah not really I mean I don't know uh, I let think, me ask I you another I... way or do people consider you good looking yeah, you know, also actually, so one of my, I, so here's the thing is that I think people hang out for the most part with people who are equivalently good looking to them. Um, and so I personally don't think that I'm uh, overwhelmingly attractive. I'm definitely not. But when I look at a lot of the people, like consistently, my friends, very good looking, which to me looks like, okay, so like empirically, like whatever my actual, you know, sort of appearance is. I think that uh, well, there's no empirical appearance. I mean, that's what I'm trying to. Say. So that's what I'm trying to construct. All... Is, is, is uh, but I think I think I would like to do more. I think that's one thing that I've that I've had a hard time with in, during you know pandemic is that I love the so I love clothes. I love the performative aspect of even just going out in public, like going to fucking going to the office. Uh, and that's one thing that I love uh, uh, being about uh, an academic at Oxford is that you can wear tweed and there's this precedent of tweed and you can play with that uh and some people hate it some people love it but it's it's a it's a it's a thing uh and there's just it's it's all sweatpants now it's all sweatpants and so i, I think that uh you know talking about this interaction between what you're doing in the world and how you look while you're doing it i love the idea of being able to build up that interaction uh and have the personality and presence the look and the substance of what I'm saying creates a uh, holistic thing. And I feel like I've lost touch with how I look because now that interaction is I not really meaningful. I think that's true. I think everybody has. I think that like we all love wearing sweatpants on Saturday afternoon. 
mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily only want to wear sweatpants until we die, which is kind of how it feels now. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, because it is something that is, it's a, um, it's a way that you, well, I mean, it's like almost like a pseudonym in a way, you know, the way you dress is, is like taking on another name. You know, if you wear a tuxedo, the world interacts with you very differently than the way that you're wearing, you know, sweatpants and flip-flops. Um, we all know that. And so it's a way that it's a kind of power that you can use or you can, you can have used against you. I think it's often used against people because, um, I think often they, it's so important to people that they perceive other people's perceptions in the wrong way. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, and especially like when you're young and you're single, you know, and you're trying to find a partner or, or find love in your life and you feel unattractive or you feel unable to to be seductive um that feels like a huge oppression Uh, and i think it is a huge oppression i think some people never really figure it out um it's something that it's very important i think if i were designing if i were plato or somebody and i was designing an ideal educational program i would teach kids how to seduce each other Oh, that's interesting. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Did I, you learn how to seduce? How did you learn also, how to seduce? Oh, my God. I, so I have a ton of theories about this. Um, one thing I will say is that uh, one of the reasons I have a hard time answering the question, how attractive are you, is that I think that my well, I have a, a level of confidence. Designed, that, it's a question that's designed to make you be awkward. Right? Yeah. Nobody's going to say, I'm really, really hot. Well, the, I, mean. <laughs> I think the, the thing that people are attracted to, particularly in a, in a sexual way, is, is the confidence. I think that there's, there's an element in which I'm, I'm, uh, that is the thing that I can leverage more than like a face. Right. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and then I've certainly been, been conscious of. But I actually, so I actually have this big theory uh, that uh, I developed during my dating life, which I call the narrative contour theory of romantic encounters. And that it's basically that the same thing that um, engenders feelings of romantic attraction is the same thing that um, essentially attracts you to a book, essentially gets you into feel connected with the plot of a book, which is it needs to uh, uh, there needs to be a beginning, a middle and end, a, you know, sort of introduction, rising action, climax, which, you know, in this case could be uh, interpreted as a euphemism. Uh, but uh, the basic idea is that when you are encountering someone with whom you would like to have a romantic connection, you don't start off being your most gregarious, um, you know, open body language self. Uh, you start off um, slightly uh, uh, awkward uh, and then build uh, from a artificially low place into you know your biggest self, and it's that connection, uh, that that sort of ten- that um, dramatic tension that increases throughout an evening or a, a lifetime of relationship at any time scale that is what um, sort of brings about this psychic psychological feeling of um, being attracted to someone. Um, as opposed to the easiest way to get um, friend zoned with someone is to be really comfortable with them from the beginning and to have a plot that just stagnates. It's just flat lines from the beginning. That's the easiest way to not uh, uh, 
engender romantic connection with someone with whom you would have a potential romantic uh, connection. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because you do, I think there's something about reserve that is appealing. Yeah. But I, you know, and you, you often have that with, um, with people who are interesting in general, who know there how to be the, the promise of more that. to come, you know? Well, and also the, the promise of a challenge, you mm. know, because sometimes um, there are those sexual moments where the great appeal is that it's not that hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, uh-huh. Like, <laughs> right. Let's yeah, yeah. Get it on. Um, and that's really great sometimes. But there's also um, there's also the, the building up, which it can happen over the course of an evening. I think probably when it does happen in the course of an evening, it's more successful. You know, you don't, it's, it's too. Well, you have to know the time scale that you're working at beforehand in order for the strategy to work. So you have to say, this is going to be an evening thing. I'm going to build the tension over the course of of hours, over a course of, you know, a a couple of drinks versus I want this to be a relationship that has, um, you know, lifelong potential. Now I have to figure out how to build rising action into years and years and decades and all that sort of stuff well that is hard i mean that's that's one of the challenges of a long marriage you know is that there's only so much dramatic tension you can build into 50 years you know you have to at some point slacken the the bow whatever (laughs) the expression is you know but yeah no i think these things are so interesting and important and i think that like people who um People who don't either learn these things or figure them out are at a permanent disadvantage. Naipaul says this. So you asked me um, about the writers and stuff that I would, the books that were important to me. B.S. Naipaul was a very, very formative influence on me. And um, I I remember he said somewhere that Indians aren't taught to seduce and that this is a big handicap in their culture. Somehow he says that. Um, cause all the marriages are arranged and all the sort of romances is, or the sexual impulse is all channeled into these kind of very rigid cultural forms where you don't really have a lot of choice. You know, they marry you off to somebody and that's going to be that. And, um, that he thought this had retarded Indian civilization in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing it in a way that I'm not, it is what he says. I'm sure he says more eloquently, than that. but, um, but I think it's true. And I think that the ways that you the ways that you learn to leverage what you have. I mean, for me, you know, I think this could go in the same direction as we talked about now, six hours ago when we started talking. Um, what, you know, do you, do you keep singing if you're not really that good a singer or do you go do something else where you think, Oh, I could be really good at that. I really, you know, do you, how long do you stick with things that aren't really your talent? You know, how much, can you really force and how much can you learn um it all to me kind of plays back into that into those questions i guess that's why biographies are so interesting in a way is you know you see how other people answer these questions yeah yeah absolutely you know one thing that you uh so here's one thing is that historically and sort of in principle and in practice i like autobiographies way more than i like biographies because I'm really interested in, uh, I want to know what people get wrong about their lives.
lives, right? When in a biography, the thing is that you you can right. have so much more, you can be so much more correct. And I don't have any interest in, in knowing what the correct answer is. I want to know what they thought about their own shit. Um, and I loved your biography of, of, of Sontag in a way that I don't often love biography. And, and I think one reason for that is that it goes back to something that you said in the interview that I referenced earlier, which is that you don't believe in critical distance, uh, which is that you ought to be interested and invested in the people and events that you write about. And, and actually caring about these things doesn't prevent you from scrutinizing them. And if you, you know, if you do try to wholly abstain from developing a personal perspective on, on these things, then the book can get a little boring. So um, I really like the way that you uh, have approached that. And I, I think that that like, yeah, definitely, uh, I don't know. It's just so much more of an interesting way of, of engaging with material for me, you know? Um, yeah, I couldn't do it any other way. I don't really believe in critical distance, as you said. I mean, I think that like you can have a critical distance in the sense that like you are not the same person. So like this person is not you. Um, it, it, it's a fake thing in a way because every writer, if you write a, you know, two paragraph restaurant review in some provincial newspaper, you have a perspective. And the only reason that anyone's going to want to read it or care about it is for your perspective. It's not actually, um, people don't realize that they read biographies for the biographer rather than for the subject, but yeah. they do. You know, if you're going to read all 800 pages or whatever, however long my book is, if you're going to read all of that, um, it's because you're interested in the writer rather than the subject. Yeah. And that's true of a novel. That's true of a poem. That's true of a play. You know, you're interested in um, the writer and the subject could actually be pretty boring in a way. I mean, the subject or, or could be even really trivial. You know, there have been really interesting books written about, you know, particularly novels about what look like very uninteresting lives from, from an outside perspective, but that the writer makes interesting. Um, and I, you know, I believe in this principle very deeply uh, in journalism. I think that uh, one of the big problems is the the fake, uh, you know, that the both sides thing. Like, well, here's what Mitch McConnell said about that, and we're going to put that in there because we feel that we can't say that this guy is just a liar. Um, we're putting him in there because we're assuming this this position of fake equanimity, and um, so I just don't do it, and. Um, I, I, you know, and I, and I think another thing, particularly if you have an academic background, is that you're often encouraged to include, like, okay, so this is what the 10 specialists in the subject have said about this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. And then what's missing is like you. It's like, well, if I wanted to read what they had to say about this, I would read their book. I wouldn't read this book. So it's, I, I just think, People should say what they mean. And um, that's a lot harder than it seems. But it is actually, in a way, the subject of that book. I mean, it's one of the subjects of Sontag. Yeah, is how do you, Yeah. How do you do it? You know, it's, uh, when you mention the academic perspective, it's definitely something that I don't like about psychology and psychological scholarship, which is that what it means to address a, the literature of a, of a, 
a particular topic, a particular field, a particular area of study within psychology, is to go through and do a one-sentence summary of every paper that's ever been written about them and sort of have this laundry list. That's of... not just psychology. That's right. not just psychology. That's 100%. academic writing in general, and it's tedious. And, and, and um... whereas, whereas I believe what true scholarship is about, and that's, you know, of course, a very pretentious word, but I think it, like, I mean something very sincere by it. What I think that true scholarship is about is not being able to list all of the relevant facts in a particular domain, but is about being able to architect a coherent and hopefully large uh, perspective on something. Right. And to be able to write a new read perspective a, a and a, and a, that comes through your sensibility yeah, in the way that, you know, yeah. if you look at a photograph or a, a portrait or a, you know, a, a painting of somebody, you're not looking at like the, you know, this picture that just sold in this Botticelli that just sold for $90 million or whatever. It doesn't matter who's in the picture. It matters that Botticelli painted it. You know, it matters yeah. that it's a beautiful painting. And so. And, and everyone's different. You know, if Leonardo and Raphael had painted that same guy, it would have looked totally different. Yeah. So what you have to realize is that you have your perspective and your voice to contribute to something. And, and that's, you know, that's all you have, actually. It's, if you remember that line at the very end of, of the book, the Sontag book, she says to Klaus Biesenbach, who's a curator in Los Angeles now, um, you know, never give up as a, as a, you never give up your own opinion, your own voice, never sell it, never give it away because it's the only thing you really have. So that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. So I guess, um, I guess that makes me wonder. So you, you've mentioned in other places that like, uh, you did two big biographies of these larger-than-life women that you're now, in a way, married to. It feels hard to do more of that. What a, I guess, what, is that, what does that look like going forward for you, building on building on that? What are the, what are the projects? Yeah. No, I'm done like? with that vein <laughs> of things. I mean, I, I really, um, I'm done with that. I've, I'm not going to do another biography. I'm actually doing two things now. One of them is I'm writing a book slash something about my generation of Americans um, who are the kids that were brought to inherit the greatest empire in the world and um, who found ourselves totally stranded, you know, even before we were middle-aged um, by the complete lose of every illusion that we had had growing up. Um, so that's one project. And the other thing I'm doing that I'm about halfway done with is a book about Dutch golden age art. So it's about Rembrandt and his work and um it's a series of graphical in the sense that it's a series of portraits of um of the great dutch painters awesome so yeah is that everyone in the I mean, um dutch speaking lowlands or is that specifically just dutch does it include and does it include Flemish? no it's specifically dutch and specifically 17th century oh, okay. so I mean, because Dutch painting is one of those things, or, or Netherlandish painting, is one of those. What do you? What do you in English? So this is something that I'm very interested in. In English, what do you call? What do you like to call the country? What is like? Uh, you've, you've you said you're partnered to live in Holland, presumably meaning North or South Holland, one of the uh, 
uh, you know, no, we live in Utrecht. We actually don't live oh, in Holland. So but... you, so you guys don't. <laughs> so, so you, yeah. I so mean, let's let's hear what is. How do you speak about this country in English? I I, I usually say Holland. Mm. I mean, or the Netherlands. It doesn't really. There I are people a, that have more. I have heavy a proposal. About this than I do. I What's think your we, proposal? I think we should call it Dutchland. Um, be, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, in, in English, we have a sort of confusing nomenclature for like the, the German and Germanic speaking uh, countries and that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, I think Dutch language... See, in every language they do. Right. Because uh, there's a lot of different Germanic tribes. So almost every language has a different word for Germany or German. Right. So Dutchland is nice because um, uh, it reflects, uh, you know, it sort of sounds like we're trying to say Deutschland, uh, which would be Germany, uh, which I think uh, goes nicely with our general. It's the confusion. same word. It's the yes. same word. Uh, and, it, you know, Nederland, uh, you know, uh, low, uh, like, you know, below land, like that sort of stuff. Uh, it works with that. It's... Um, uh, gives us a sort of alignment with what we call the people, which we have no confusion about, uh, which, of course, in Dutch, right. you have Nederland, Nederland. No, actually, and a lot of people often confuse Dutch and Danish. <laughs> mm. oh, well, that, that, For some stupid yeah. um, So I think, I think we, should, we should overhaul our English uh, label of it and call it Dutchland. Well, I will pass <laughs> that on to the... I'm gonna let that Whoever sit with you. I like. I think that there's well, you're a lot. In Oxford, of... You can you can pass on to the OED. I mean, yeah. They can... Yeah. I mean, no, I'm I'm gonna try and they I'm can... gonna try and build a grassroots movement uh, for it. Uh, so just right. let the let the idea sit with you for a while. I think I think you'll come around Rome wasn't when you in a day. scrutinize it. I think you'll find there's a lot of merit in that. Uh, in in, in, All right. in this idea. So but I'll let you discover it for yourself. Finally, and uh, finally, a, a problem is solved. <laughs> Uh, no, some people care about it more than I do. I don't. I mean, what's, um, what's your? So, do you like Utrecht? I love Utrecht. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a great city. Yeah. It might be the perfect city to live in, mm. but um, I don't necessarily love the country. I mean, I think it's a pain in the ass of a country. Oh yeah. Um, but, but I like the cities. The cities are really great. Yeah. Um, at a national level, there's something kind of awful about it. Huh. It, what? In what way? Um, a, a combination of smugness with provincialism. Mm. Okay. It's um, it's a very nice place to live. I mean, I like living there actually. Um, but that's and but that's what they're smug about, right? Is that they feel that it's a nice place to live? Well, I feel yeah. I mean, they they feel that every very strong that anything that that in any way diverges from the Dutch middle class norm is really really weird. Yeah. And they can't get their heads around it in a way that's just like really tiresome sometimes. But, you know, it's a country that I've spent a lot of time in over the years. I mean, I've probably spent more time there than anywhere else except for the U.S. I mean, I don't know. Because um, I go back and forth. It's kind of hard to add it up. But the um, – no, I mean, I the thing I love about it is the art. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I found my – you know, I was talking about losing my identity in a way. And I think I, I the thing that I decided or that I – identified with was was the great painters of the netherlands and um so that's been like a constant through my life 
Yeah, that, I'm, I'm really interested to see how you build that going forward because, I mean, from an outside perspective of someone who, you know, like knows of you in the way that probably most people know of you, uh, you know, just sort of like, oh, I you know, came across this guy and his work and everything. People from the outside perspective would look at you now and say, biographer, right? Um, for better yeah. or for worse, that's those are the things that you've uh, you've done. And now you're like, okay, it's time to, you know, I don't know if reinvention is the right word, but you have to you have to build on that now in in a way that I think it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like uh, and how you articulate. Well, yeah, my personality, as you said, my personality tendency is to burn the village as I retreat, you know, like I, I kind of, um, I don't like to be stuck in an identity or a, or a thing. Do you have an so, but, like a succinct label identity that you could apply to yourself? Do you say, uh, oh, I'm, you know, a journalist, biographer, writer, like what did you do? Writer, there? writer. Yeah, that's the easiest. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been a journalist. I don't yeah. do any journalism, really. I mean, I, every once in a while I write a piece somewhere, but no, I'm not a journalist. Yeah. Because, I mean, did you... I, like you never really were trained, were you? Like you obviously well, have mean, been I went educated. To, I went to like, high school, huh? <laughs> yeah, like you were generally educated, but you have you've not been trained in a vocation in the way that uh, you know an academic is, a journalist is, uh, you know, like that sort of stuff. I think it's very interesting, you know, and I and I love no, those are my I favorite haven't. people. That's the whole point of of you know what we were talking about Brown and stuff. I I. I avoided that, and I um, and I often wished I had, you know, gone to law school or something. I mean, I don't wish that anymore. But for a long time, when you're just like staring at your four thousand dollar a year income, you think, "Wow, either I'm really a genius or I'm really fucking <laughs> stupid." And turns out a little bit of both. Yeah. Oh, but you know, I think most people who are creative it's kind of both yeah you have to be dumb enough to start and smart enough to finish yeah um yeah i think another another way that i think about that problem is that so i think in philosophy if you look at the great philosophers like if you look at like kant uh by all accounts guy understood some shit in a really important way but was clearly naive about huge, huge swathes of the world, right? Never never left Königsberg, uh, more than 12 miles or whatever it was. But the point being that in order to be really perceptive and correct and interesting and all that about one part of the world, you almost have to give up another part. Um, or there, there's, there's, there's... Well, that's if you're looking at the world geographically. I mean, I really, I think that's one of the things I've written about in this book I'm writing about Americans is that we thought that um, translation and travel and all this kind of stuff was necessarily good. Well, I believe but geography I is a I metaphor has... in what I was saying, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, but that's in, that's super interesting. So yeah, develop that. Sorry, I interrupted. I, but I just wanted to say, I mean, by, I mean geography as a metaphor in this case for perspective. Right. I think it is... Uh, useful in that but yeah what were you saying right well but i think you know some people i mean we mentioned emily dickinson like she never really left her bedroom mm. um i think that there's a kind of you can get a lot of fake experience by going around and doing stuff and meeting people or you can also sit home and just write all your life and, and try to figure things out that way and i think that there's something about that inwardness that that is 
I think we're all feeling it now as a, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, we wearing the sweatpants, but on the other hand, we'd like to see our friends once every two years, you know, um, or go out to dinner or like not. What was travel supposed to solve for your generation of Americans that didn't solve? It was supposed to make us less provincial quote unquote. And that didn't happen. So there was the idea is that like, we're these smug, rich white people, although not only white, I mean, actually my generation was much more mixed than my parents' generation. Um, uh, it was supposed to like enrich you somehow. It was supposed to teach you lessons. Um, and it did, it does, of course it does. We all know it does. But on the other hand, it made us extremely superficial in relation to our own culture. So very few Americans know anything about American culture, very few. Um, and I think that a lot of it is because we were, we talked down our own culture in a way. We didn't quite take it seriously. Hmm. Yeah. And we needed to, we thought it was so triumphant. It was so obviously superior that it was fine to go wander amidst the pygmies of Malaysia or whatever. You know, you could, you could kind of indulge this thing because you just figured that your culture was so secure and so successful that you didn't really need to it was taking care of itself well it's in the way that like computers got better right it almost seems to me like it would be uh there's a sort of implicit assumption in that statement that i don't need to study my own culture that it is the archetypal culture it is the sort of yeah, center of gravity exactly. and then now i'm exactly. going to go explore the sort of the the constellation of other things that are um sort of circulating well, around we also that. we could because yeah. transportation and communication were so instant and so cheap that, you know, like I, I interviewed my parents about this, like where they'd gone before they were 18. And the conclusion was my mother had left Texas twice um, to go to Arkansas and Oklahoma. No, thrice. I'm sorry. She went to um, her, her aunt lived in Shreveport. Yeah. So she went from Dallas to Shreveport. And, you know, and she said, we were actually kind of, cosmopolitan for a lot of people in dallas you know that was far yeah it took like a day to get to louisiana over little roads and um and so for us you know we could as i said i could get in a plane and i could be in sao paulo the next afternoon and you know what costs like seven hundred dollars six hundred dollars click online you're there anyway right Cody, I have got to go eat lunch. God, no kidding. God, you better have to go do something at this point. Like there, I know it's fun talking to you though. I, I it's, nice. it's it's fun. It's yeah. not always fun. Sometimes I. No, I this is great. Down. I mean, I just like I, I honestly don't even like. I want to. There's obviously plenty of questions that uh, I could ask you about your actual work. But now there's just stuff I want to ask you about other stuff that has nothing to do with your professional uh, accomplishments and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Well, when the lockdown is over, yeah. um, come down to France. Yeah, we're close. I mean, well, we, we um, uh, Haley, so she's also started her PhD here in Oxford now. So we're here for the, the, the near future. Um, but before that, she worked in Paris. Uh, we both really love uh, uh, Paris. And that's high on our list to get back to. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll be heading to France very shortly after it's possible to do so, hopefully. Oh, I mean, it's such a dream. I feel like going to London, it's like, will I ever do that again? <laughs> but I guess I will. You know, it feels, it feels yeah. so far. And, and 
my god you know? yeah it's so but close yeah so well far. tell her yeah. um i'm glad she went to brown that's yeah. nice to know what's she getting her phd in uh international development so she's from vietnam originally um and she's you know uh again sort of one of these people like like you who as you you wouldn't really be able to point to a vocation she's been trained in her her initial her undergrad at brown was in like environmental engineering uh and then her master's was in like city planning from mit and now she's doing basically development anthropology uh here so it's uh yeah it's it's very cool cool. uh uh, I'm sure we'll be doing city succeed. planning was one of the things I would have loved to have um, studied actually in another life. Oh my God. Yeah. And actually one of my best friends is she did that. And now she's a huge developer. In you have so many fucking so, cool um, friends. Anyway. All right. Well, listen, um, yeah. it was great to talk to you. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's been great. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, sure I wonder. I think again. you have enough material for your seven-part <laughs> podcast. Yeah, but feel free to you know mix and match whatever. Okay, yeah, sounds good. All right, All take right. care. Yep, enjoy your lunch. Bye. See ya. Bye.